Before I jump into this episode, I did want to offer just a brief warning and disclaimer. In this episode, we're going to be talking about a member of our community who has faced addiction and mental health challenges with anxiety and depression. This discussion could be triggering for some of you, so I just advise you to proceed with caution. In addition, neither Michael or I are mental health professionals or doctors or those that are here to help those who may be struggling with addiction. So I encourage you, if that's you, to seek professional help from someone who can give you the resources you need to get help. And finally, for those other listeners who may not be struggling with a challenge in one of those areas, then I encourage you to educate yourself on how you can help those around you who might be and also educate yourself on the systemic challenges that our world faces that can lead to addiction and what you can do about it. So with that, we'll jump into this episode, which is one man's journey to face mental health and addiction challenges. Here we go. Hey everybody, welcome to episode 275 of the Running Rogue podcast. This is Chris, back to you after a missed week, and I'm excited about today's topic. We are going to be discussing running and mental health today, and we're going to be doing that through the eyes and lens of the storytelling of one of our rogue athletes, Michael Wilt. He approached me a couple of weeks ago about joining me on the podcast to tell his story about running and mental health and how those two things have worked together for him. So we're going to be sharing his story, and I'm excited to share it because I think there will be many out there who could be helped by his journey. So we'll get to my conversation with Michael in a second. First, a couple of quick things. One, I wanted to give a shout out to Care Of, my now long-term sponsor. They're sponsoring this episode as well, and I'll be talking more about them mid-episode. Secondly, I actually wanted to give a shout out to you guys as listeners. I was talking with Michael about the reach of the podcast, which made me Go back and look and update my demographic data, which I share with advertisers for the locations by which people are listening to me from. So I went back and checked it out, looking at the last two months of data and wanted just to give a shout out to the breadth of listeners that we have. I've got about 78% of you listen to us from the United States, the other 22% from all over the world literally from 116 countries around the world I have downloads from in the last couple of months. And if I look at my top 10 list, obviously United States is number one. And then we have Canada, United Kingdom, Australia, Ireland, Sweden, New Zealand, Netherlands, Germany, Denmark represented in the top 10 in terms of countries. So that's pretty cool. And then if you drill into the U.S. by way of specific cities and markets, interestingly, Austin and New York are essentially tied for the number one markets. Not surprising that Austin would be up there, but excited to see New York right there as well. And then two through three clustered right together are Washington, D.C., Los Angeles, and Boston. And then we have San Francisco, Seattle area, Dallas, and Houston all clustered in six through nine. And then just behind them is Minneapolis rounding out the top 10 with Denver right there waving at the top 10 as well. So that's pretty cool to see the breadth of listeners, not only internationally, but also just in all those major markets across the U.S. from coast to coast, 
cool to see that representation. So shout out to all of you as listeners from wherever you may be listening. Thanks so much for listening and inspiring me to keep doing this and creating good content for you all. Now I want to turn to my conversation with Michael and again, thank him for coming on and sharing his story. His story is one that many I think can relate to, but it is also his individual story. And while we will be talking about mental health issues, I highly encourage anybody who might be facing something to go seek professional help. But I certainly hope along the way that this story, Michael's story can be inspiring to you or at least make you feel a little bit less alone if, if you're facing some of these challenges as well. Michael's parallel journey on the running side is equally inspiring as he started his marathon journey in 2016 with a 447 first marathon and has most recently run a 248 marathon in Houston earlier this year. That's almost a two-hour improvement, so there will be some running lessons along the way in this conversation too. So with that as our intro, let's jump in with Michael. Here we go. Welcome, Michael Wilt, to the show. Michael, how are you doing? Doing great. Thanks for having me, Chris. Thanks for volunteering to come on the show. You reached out to see if I would have you on to tell your story. And and a part of the reason for that is that this is Mental Health Awareness Month and you have a story to tell that honestly, I don't know much about, but that you were clearly passionate about talking about. So I'm excited to dig into it. And we'll just see where this conversation goes. But I appreciate your willingness to raise awareness for mental health, because clearly that is a topic that's top of mind for many now. But also, of course, to open up about sharing your story for others so that hopefully this conversation will help someone else. So to begin, first of all, I just want to say thanks for being a rogue member. You are I don't know how long you've been with us now, but you're a longtime member now at this point. And it's been fun to watch your journey from afar, especially in, in the recent time frames when I started to see you pop up around me in long runs and things like that as you got faster. But it's been cool to get to know you a little bit over the last, especially year and a half. So thanks for being a part of the crew. But I want to start by going back because you have a history to tell. And part of that's on the mental health side, part of that's on the running side. And then obviously where those things connect, because it's clear to me that running is, is an outlet of some form for you. So on the mental health side, let's start there. Well, actually, even before that, let's go back to just a little bit about you. Where were you born? What's your background? Sure. Uh, I'm from Amarillo, which is 500 miles from Austin. It's not close. It's actually closer to four other state capitals than Austin. Uh, I moved to Austin in 1996 to go to UT, like a lot of people. I uh, didn't stick around after college. I moved out to San Francisco, was out there for a few years, and then came back for good in 2007 and here since. Um, but yeah, that, that's about it. Love Austin. Love being here. Love being part of the run community. I joined Rogue in September of 2018. And, and I have to say, at least for the past 18, 20 months or whatever, it's been nice to have you to chase. So yeah, it's always been something on my mind. How can I, how can I, uh, how can I catch up to Chris? So <laughs> nice. I feel like I'm, I'm finally there. Uh, you're definitely there. I'm chasing you, I think now. So, so then let's, let's go back to then your mental health, the mental health side of your journey. Where does that begin for you? Wow. I mean, it, it, it started early on, I guess the first time that 
uh, I had a panic attack. That was probably the the most acute instance of a mental health flare up, if you will, was my freshman year at, at UT. I didn't really know what it was and it kind of went away. And then they started to become more frequent when I was in law school. And I was bouncing a lot of things, had a lot of things going on. I was going to law school at night. I was working full time. There are a lot of stressors involved in that. I was living in San Francisco. I didn't have a good network of friends. Um, wasn't anywhere close to family or anything like that. Panic attacks became more routine. Went to local health clinic on campus there at the law school. And, and that's when they first said, you've got some, some stuff going on. You've got an anxiety disorder. You've got uh, depression. Um, tried, to, tried to treat that with, with um, pill regimen, as a lot of people do. That you know, you have varying levels of, of success to, depending on what you're on. Um, but, you know, for me at the time, the, the, the thing that always did the trick was drinking. And, uh, and you know, drinking, obviously, it, it gives you a sense of calmness and, and easiness. And it's um, something I've been around for a long time uh, from being around family, you know, yeah. heavy drinking culture. And it's something I, I turn to, and it's something I continue to turn to on on a daily basis, um, and eventually around the clock for the better part of eleven or twelve years um, until it became so severe that I landed in the emergency room, and that wasn't the first time I was in the emergency room. It was actually the third time, uh, but but this time it was the most serious, and that was in uh, June. It was June twenty fifth of twenty fourteen. Uh, that was the last time I had a drink. Wow. And uh, was admitted to the hospital with double or organ failure. My my kidneys and liver had both failed. Uh, I was given a 10% chance to live, to live through that night. Uh, made it through the night. I don't remember any of this. I had, I had sisters who came in from halfway across the country. They were there for a couple of days. Didn't remember any of it. Probably maybe started to regain a little bit of consciousness. And, into day two, day three. I forgot how to walk. I couldn't communicate. I couldn't write. All my motor skills were gone. So, you know, basically had to start my life completely over. Uh, and, you know, everybody's got a different sobriety journey, right? Mm -hmm. And and I always tell people, you know, I didn't seek out sobriety. Sobriety sought me out. Uh, people get to that level of sobriety in, in different ways. It doesn't have to be as severe as mine. Um, there are people that are sober curious now, or just want to reduce their alcohol consumption or, or, or want to be involved in the sober, sober community in any number of ways. Uh, yeah, but for me, you know, how, how severe it was and, and knowing that there was a good chance I was going to die. It made the decision not to drink a very black and white one for me, uh, a very binary decision. And one that I made that day on, on June, well, not June 25th, because I couldn't comprehend anything, <laughs> but a couple of days later, yeah. uh, you know, I was in the hospital for about 10 days, checked into a rehab center after that, did inpatient treatment um, for about five weeks and then outpatient treatment for a long time. And well, then I want to pause so, yeah. there because that's, I think a good overview and summary of where you've been, but I want to drill into a few of those moments just so that people can understand better. And I want to really go back to that first anxiety attack, because as you said, you didn't know 
what it was. You know, you thought it might've been perhaps just a blip or something. What were your symptoms? What did you experience? And what did you think at the time when you had that first bout of anxiety? It's basically a flight reaction. Get me out of where I am as quickly as possible and get me in a location where I feel more secure. The first time it happened, I was in a Greek class, a Greek freshman class at UT. Uh, I was seated away, like three rows away from the exit door. It was in the middle of the class and I got up and I walked out and I went back to my dorm room where I felt more comfortable. Mm. I didn't know what was going on. All I knew was that I didn't want to be where I was. Uh, my heart felt like it was going to explode out of my chest. I didn't know how I could breathe properly. I didn't know when it was going to end. And I wanted to be somewhere where I felt more secure. Did I know it was a panic attack at the time? No. Did I know how to treat it at the time? No. I didn't, I didn't know the first thing about anything that was happening to me. I don't know what triggered it. Right. What did work for you after you got to that safe place? Was it just about being in that safe place or how did you regain composure in that moment? It, it was just about being in that safe place. Mm -hmm. and, it, and it didn't happen again for probably a few years. Um, and, but it, the, when it started to happen more frequently, that's when I could identify triggering events. And then what were your triggers? Uh, basically, when I felt uh, out of uh, the loss of control over a situation, and, and the loss of control was kind of a central theme to a lot of my own uh, mental health struggles. Mm. Uh, it's certainly a very common among alcoholics uh, who want to have control over every aspect of their life. And when you lose it, uh, you, you freak out and you go into panic mode. For a great example of that is people who are uncomfortable flying like I was for a long time, because somebody else is flying a very heavy aircraft six miles up in the air and you're in a little tube and you're in a compressed space and you have no control over what's going to happen. So events like that, where things where you have just absolutely no clue, no idea how things are going to turn out. You know, those are the types of triggering events. And then just, you know, common stressors. I, I think everybody can kind of relate to having a lot on their plate. And when you have, uh, you know, what I was going through out in California with a uh, demanding full-time job, having just 30 minutes after work before you start law school for the night, you come home from, from classes, you have to read for the next day, you're on, you're on from seven o'clock in the morning until 10 o'clock at night. And you don't feel like you're ever getting a break from that. And so those stressors are triggering events as well. Yeah. And before you sought treatment at the clinic, what did you feel, did you, did you have any sense for what was going on with you or how did you try to cope at that time? At that time, you don't, I didn't want, I felt like I didn't want to be in my own skin. That's probably the best way to explain it. I didn't want to breathe my own breaths. I didn't, I, the, the, what I felt in my body felt like I was a host in somebody else's body. I didn't want to be in, in my own skin it's just like it was entirely uncomfortable and you know i was treated i was given medication kind of a in case of emergency break glass medication uh which just sedates you and um but can also be addictive um you're given benzos is the the, the short way of saying uh whatever the full name is for the drug to help calm you down but again those can be uh addictive so it, it's a really tricky balance with with how you with how you treat people with, 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 couple, with, with multiple mental illnesses going on, you know, if you're trying to treat the anxiety, you may be treating it with something that will create 
an addiction to something else, especially if you know that person has a history of substance use uh, and, and abusing substances. So, you know, it, 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 and I'm a perfect example of that because what they were treating me with was stuff that I was mixing with, with alcohol, which is very dangerous. Mm. And, um, you know, I never really found a way to treat myself until I, first of all, eliminated the alcohol. I think one of the things about these challenges that's been, that's getting better as we have more awareness is this idea that if you have a diagnosed condition like this, that there's something wrong with you or that it was your fault versus it being perhaps genetic or issues with brain chemistry or whatever it may be. So before you really understood what was going on and got the appropriate help, did you feel like you were broken, like something was wrong with you or that it was your fault that you were having these challenges? That's a great question, Chris. Uh, And I'm glad you brought that up for a number of reasons. And first, it's I, I haven't opened up about this a lot. I've never opened up about it publicly in this sort of forum. I don't talk about this on social media. I talk about it. And that's because a lot of the time I wanted to have agency over my story, right? It's my story to tell uh, how I tell it, who I tell it to. Everybody who is on a journey like this, they should have agency over their story as well. But the more I thought about it, the more that I, I don't think I'm doing a service to, to myself or anyone if I stay quiet about stuff like this. Uh, if there's a stigma attached to it, and there still is to a certain extent, that's somebody else's issue. They can choose to judge me. They can choose not to associate with me. They can choose to uh, think about me however they want. That's not my issue. That's their issue. And they're entitled to that opinion, that belief, whatever. More power to them. Mm-hmm. But and uh, and I think that the, the reason I didn't know what was going on with me and the reason I thought I was different is because I didn't I didn't have people I I could I could talk to who had dealt with similar things. And it turns out there were people that I knew in my family, there were friends I knew that had gone through this. And especially with my family, you know, the family history is there. And people who had the same struggle as me never once told me about their story. And maybe I could have intervened er- earlier on whenever I first saw the signs of this popping up back in college and done something completely different to avoid, you know, a decade plus of alcohol abuse. Uh, so. it's important for me now to be uh, more open and honest about this. And, you know, obviously we're going to get to the running aspect. I don't want this just to be a conversation about alcohol, (laughs) but it's really, it's the intersection of mental health and, and, and and physical health. Uh, But, you know, I have some people I look up to in, in the Austin community that are sober runners who are a lot more vocal about this as well. You know, Mitch Ammons is a perfect example of that. I discovered him based on his story. Um, he's an amazing guy to look up to. Uh, there are some runners up in New York and in all across the country that are very vocal about this on social media. And, you know, so I, it, it, and it, at that point I was like, look, if these people are talking about it, I should feel just as comfortable as well. Yeah. So talk a little bit about one of the things I've observed in seeing friends go through these things is that identifying the diagnosis initially can be challenging sometimes depending on exactly what's going on. Was that your experience? And then the second part of that is then finding the right set of medications or whatever it may be to address the issue can also be an individual journey where they might try something. It doesn't work. You've got to adjust either the medication itself or the dosage in order to figure out the balance for you. So talk about that part of the journey. Wow. 
uh, uh, yeah, that's ugh, that's been the most difficult part, how you treat this. But at the same time, it didn't have to be. I felt like if 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 I had to do it all over again and reround reround twenty years and was armed with the knowledge I know now, it would have been a very simple regimen. This is this is what you're diagnosed with, and this is how we're going to fix it. Whether it's through medication or whether it's you're changing your lifestyle, combination of both. Whether it's changing your environment, doing however whatever you need to do to to have that treatment regimen in place. Um, that's going to be the solution you stick with. Cause really, I mean, for me, it's, it's a cocktail of things, right? I don't, I have, I still have that medication that in case of emergency break glass, like full on panic attack, um, take one of these. And I never have to, except for maybe like the occasional flights, but other people are different. Um, but had there been some, you know, had I gotten that first general anxiety disorder and said, all right, this is how we're going to treat it. Um, and, and let's see if it works and, and go from there as opposed to being told I have anxiety and then not doing anything about it for years. And then when I did something about it, I was treating it in a dangerous way. You know, that's, that's terrible. So, you know, now I'm at, a, at the point where it's being treated in, in, in a responsible way. And I, I, and I would say the, the majority of my treatment has to do with, with running. Mm. Um, and once I started running, anxiety went away. Uh, the depression really wasn't um, an issue, at least the major depressive disorder. And then I didn't, I, I'd given up drinking by that point. Um, so it's largely a medication free treatment plan that I'm on. But again, that's, that's me personally speaking. Right. And it doesn't necessarily work for everybody. Yeah, which is an important thing to note. Everybody's journey is going to be different. And obviously, if you're facing these challenges, seek medical attention. We're, we're not uh, prescribing yeah, and, solutions here. You know, we haven't even touched on on things like eating disorders, um, which are common among the, run, the, the running community. You know, I remember I saw this post recently. I think it was from Runner's World on Instagram where uh, somebody was asking about what the ideal running type, body running type. And some guy in the comments who fast runner, he's like a 226 guy up in Canada, has some sort of uh, Canadian province record. And he basically, his comment was, you should look like the Olympians. That's what your body should look like. The people who are on the podium. And it made me so angry because he has to know the people that are reading the comments are predominantly runners. He has to know that among runners, there are a lot of people who, who struggle with their body image and what a body type looks like. We all know that no matter the body type, you're a runner, you're an athlete. Right. And this guy is giving very negative information to, to, to reinforce some of the old stereotypes surrounding running. And so, you know, whether it's anxiety, depression, eating, substance use, whatever, there are a whole host of mental health issues that, that, that come into play in the, in the running world. And so I want to make sure that you know, I'm, acknowledging at least the spectrum of them and sensitive to all of them. Yep. Completely agree. And I do want to get to your running journey, but a few more questions on your history, just to help people who may be in that place or maybe who've been that place to relate. When, when you were self-medicating with alcohol, mm-hmm. what ultimately did that look like for you at its worst? Uh, 
you know, I'm trying to think about how to answer this because you know we don't we don't like to retell our war stories like oh I mm-hmm. I drink more than you at my worst or like I was a better al- alcoholic than you <laughs> or a worse alcoholic than you, Fair but enough. it was round the clock drinking. Um, it was, it was 24, seven, 365 for the better part of half a decade. Well, and did you have people try to intervene? Did others recognize that and try to intervene before you had the the medical intervention? Yeah. Other people did. Um, and I tried to stop on my, a couple of times, um, people, you know, you lose relationships, you lose friendships, you lose family from it. Uh, and that's, and that's basically because once it becomes so advanced, your alcohol is, alcohol is basically taking over your brain processes, right? It's telling you that there are only two important things in life. And one is yourself and the other is your drink of choice. Um, and in alcohol in its conniving way will, will convince you of that until you die. Um, that there are only two outcomes for alcoholism. It's a progressive and fatal disease. So you either go out that way or you try and find a new lease on life, one that is absent of any alcohol. I remember whenever I got out of rehab, my dad asked me um, a question that I hadn't really thought of until that time. He asked me if I wanted to kill myself. And I... I told him that I wasn't actively trying to kill myself, but but I wasn't actively trying to stay alive. Mm. Wow. So when you had that moment in the ER where you almost killed yourself, was your recognition that you had to do something different on the other side immediate when you had, when you came to, when you sort of had your faculties again in that moment or was there any, you know, or was there still question about going backward? It was immediate. It was a never again moment. Yeah. And it's hard for me to express the magnitude of that, given that I had done numerous attempts on my own, which all failed. Mm-hmm. And when I told people around me that it was a final decision, they probably thought that I was lying just as I had lied about everything leading up to that. Right. There was no reason for them to believe me. And, and I think that's important for people to know is that depending on how many people you lose along the way, you, you, the people that still believe in you by the time you're fully committed sobriety can be a very small number of people. Uh, and, uh, and, and they had no reason to believe me because so, my actions had demonstrated otherwise for so long. Uh, and you just have to recognize that all you can do from then on out is to prove every day that you're committed to that decision and to honesty going forward. Right. Let's talk about your, the rehab part of your journey quickly. So you did inpatient, you said for five weeks and then outpatient. Mm-hmm. What did that look like for you? And did you ever relapse and go back or need to go back? How did that journey progress? No, I never relapsed. Um, June, June 26th, 2014 is my, uh, sobriety birthday. So I'll be coming up on eight years next month. Mm. Um, the, the treatment center was fantastic. Uh, I guess whenever I went into it, I was of the understanding that everybody in there is, is going to come out and they're going to, 
they're going to be these new people. They're never going to pick up their, their old behaviors again, whatever they were into. That, that doesn't happen. Um, one of the, the last week I was in there, there was a guest speaker as part of uh, our AA meeting. And he said, like, basically, your odds of, of not relapsing are, are low, mm. 20, 30%. And nobody believed him because we still had this rose-colored view of everything. <laughs> we're, we're fresh in our sobriety, like we're feeling great on top of the world. We call it the pink cloud environment where everything is just perfect. And nobody believed him. And then, yeah, inevitably, you check out and at least three of the four people that I were closest to had all relapsed within days or a week mm. or a couple of weeks or a month. The outpatient treatment uh, lasted about 12 weeks and it's just uh, therapy several times a week in, in a little circle. So it, and it's kind of a mixed bag of people because some people are there on their own. Some people are there under a court order. So you, you don't, you're getting a lot of different perspectives, but, Again, it's not people who are necessarily committed to, to long-term sobriety. It's really after you get through all that treatment phase where you're going to figure out, all right, this is, these are the supports I need around me to maintain my sobriety. And some people need a very high level of those supports on an ongoing basis, and some people don't, you know. Yeah. So what did it look like for you? What, what did you need to stay where you were? Uh, I... I've tried AA uh, and it works great for some people. Uh, for me, it's not necessary. I, I don't want to say it's not necessary because I don't want to discount the the importance of AA. But, you know, AA, they, they, a lot of them can be kind of rigid in their approach to sobriety. And you do it their way or you try it on your own or some other way. But they're, they're big believers in their way. And it works for the people that do it. I don't want to discount that. But I, you know, I think I wanted to be around people that had a more comprehensive view of what sobriety looked like and a better understanding that everybody's journey is a little bit different. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for me personally, it's been a lot of meditation. Uh, and then it's been, it's been running. Yeah. I love it. And I want to talk more about your running journey, but first I want to quickly talk about my partnership with Care Of. They're now a long-term partner. And as we talk about them this month, we want to talk about a theme of just taking care of yourself. Michael has talked about taking care of himself physically and mentally, meditation being a part of that journey for him. That is also actually a part of my journey, but also a part of my journey is taking my daily vitamin supplements that I get via Care Of. They are a vitamin and supplement company that I use to get the daily needs I have, especially related to vitamin D, but also I take other things that I get in my daily care of packages. I love the fact you can go on their website, take their quiz, put in your individual goals, and they will give you recommendations for things to take to meet those goals. You can see what's included with all of the ingredients. You can also see the science behind everything they recommend so you know exactly what goes into your body and what might help you. So you can take that quiz and then they'll send you a box with your daily pack, just like I get. And then you take that daily pack out, take what's in it, and then you can toss it away. Those packs are actually compostable. So they are environmentally friendly. And as you go with their subscription service, you can add things or take things out of your packs as your needs adapt. So I highly recommend you check them out 
You can use them just like I do too by going to takecareof.com using the promo code ROGUE50 for 50% off your first order. That's R-O-G-U-E-5-0 for 50% off your first order. Go check it out. Takecareof.com, ROGUE50 for 50% off. It will make it easier just like it does for me to get those daily vitamins and supplements. Okay, let's turn back to my conversation with Michael. So let's talk about to the let's talk about the running journey because yours is an inspiring one on its own, not to mention the intersection between mental health and running. Where did it start for you? I was a high school runner, cross country. I was terrible, Chris. <laughs> I, I you know, it's a good thing we didn't really have uh I, we had the internet, barely. Uh, but there was no kind of here are the race results as soon as you finish, and they're going to be archived on the internet for forever. Because <laughs> right. I would go back and if I had to look at my high school results, I think they were all. I, I was running junior varsity as a senior. That I can tell you how bad I was. Um, <laughs> um, and then I ran, I ran in college only because this girl I was interested in wanted to run, and so I was like, all right, let's go run. And then I ran in law school uh, here and there. I actually did the Couch to 5K program at Rogue in 2012. Oh, wow. And, and I think as soon as I finished that, I, I introduced my new program and it's called 5K to Couch. So <laughs> I ramped up to the 5K and then I ramped right back down to the couch. Um, that, was, that was actually during one of the, the brief times that I was trying sobriety on my own. Also a time that I just got out of the hospital. I was like, this is it, changing my lifestyle, signed up for running. It's what I'm familiar with. Yeah. That was a disaster. Um, but uh, I got into fitness whenever I was, whenever I was checked into rehab at a little gym. And so I started working out. I'd get up at five in the morning and take a whole mess of pills to make sure my body was functioning. And then um, and I'd go to the gym for about an hour. Uh, and then... 20, so that was 2014. Into 2014, I signed up for a duathlon and out at out of Coda. And it was a run, bike, run. Didn't have a bike. Borrowed my buddy's mountain bike. So <laughs> I was out doing Coda laps on a mountain bike. Uh, and, and then in 2015, um, I started getting into triathlons, to really short sprint distance triathlons, and hated I didn't like biking. I was a terrible swimmer. And the only thing I, I, so basically the only thing I knew how to do was to run. And so starting in 2016, that's when I started getting, or late 2015, 2016, just dedicated to running. And you trained for your first marathon, Austin Marathon 2016. Yeah. Ran a 447 there, first marathon. What was the journey like to that first race? I had, um, I signed up for a couple half marathons. Luckily, my girlfriend at the time was super into running. So she would sign up with half marathons with me. We did a couple. Uh, and then one day I just decided, hey, I want to do a marathon. I didn't know how to train for it. That, this, is, this is really funny. I, I went up to the Adidas outlet in Round Rock because I was poor. They had cheap shoes. And I, I had to get new shoes to train for the marathon. So I picked out these shoes called the Marathon TR. And I probably did 1,200 miles on them leading up <laughs> to the marathon. And then I ran the marathon in them and uh, got finished. It was, it was more of a walk run. I, I was like, all right, I can probably run the first 14 and then I'll just walk most of the way and run every now and then. 
Um, and so after the marathon, somebody's asked me my shoes. And I said, oh, yeah, they're, they're marathon specialty shoes. They're the marathon TR. Thinking that meant marathon train. It meant marathon trail. So, uh, (laughs) so I had trained on trail shoes and then ran on trail shoes, uh, for that marathon. It was quite the adventure. (laughs) That's amazing. How did it actually go? Did you actually walk the last 10, 12 miles or was it? Yeah. I had a buddy hop in with me at mile 17 and he basically said, I'm going to get you to the finish line. You know, if we have to crawl, we'll crawl, walk, whatever. He was probably 50, 50 light jog walk starting mile 17 my longest training run was mile 14 or it was 14 miles and it was it was terrible like i, I couldn't even i couldn't run 14 miles um, that's amazing so i didn't know what i was doing i didn't have a first clue what were your emotions at that finish line um pretty i mean i was elated uh i i was so happy that um that i had come that far in that amount of time um, thinking about, you know, where I was just a couple of years prior to that finish line. It was a flood of emotions. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, two years. And what about, what about the rest of your life at that point? I would assume, you know, the road was pretty rocky before and maybe even just after 2014, but had other things start to come together? How did, how did everything feel at that point in your journey? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Life was in shambles. Um, uh, before I got sober, um, you know, I had been fired from jobs. Uh, I'd been passed over for, for positions that I thought I was qualified for because I was a, a mess, you know, in, in interviews and just a mess physically, mess mentally, mess head to toe. Um, and, um, you know, like I said, I lost uh, my girlfriend at the time, um, I lost friendships. Uh, and, Wait, what was the question? <laughs> Just question. comparing where you were before oh, October yeah. and 2016, how, how did things come together for you? Holistic? Yeah. So by the end of 2014, um, uh, you know, gainfully employed again at, at the place where I currently work now. And I feel blessed because I feel like it's my dream job. Um, and, you know, uh, relationships repaired um, across the board. Um, new friendships, renewed old friendships. So yeah, career was great. Personal life, great. Physical activity, great. Definitely on, on cloud nine for a long time. That's awesome. So first marathon 2016, I know you did Amarillo the next year in 2017. Did When did you start dreaming bigger than just getting across the finish line? Uh, I was looking back at some of my posts about... Um, past marathons and it was when i ran the disney marathon i did it in 347 and that must have been 2018 january 2018 and that was the first time that i thought if i commit to this and if i get some proper coaching and a training plan maybe i could do something as crazy as qualify for boston i knew it was going to take a lot of work but um i had one more marathon that I was doing the following May, and then I talked to this friend I'd known for a long time, Laura Williamson, and she ran uh, at Rogue, and mm-hmm. she said, you should come check out my group. And I said, let me get through these two marathons, and I'll come check it out. And, and I did, and I joined in September of 2018. That's awesome. Your progression in the marathon 
has been really steady. I mean, I, I don't, have you gone backwards yet? It seems like every single time you've taken a step forward from 447 in that first one in 2016 to 248 in Houston, just a you know handful of months ago, seems like you've had a steady progression throughout. What's that journey felt like to you? I consider myself very fortunate. I know a lot of people have ups and downs with marathons. And even if you feel like you're going to have a great day, something can go wrong. There are so many things out of your control. Uh, so you're correct that every marathon I've done has been my fastest one, but I know that that's the big exception. Um, and that's certainly, I shouldn't anticipate that going forward. I'm going to have a bad marathon at some point. And I'm prepared for that. <laughs> um, I, I attribute it to, I attribute it almost externally. I attribute it almost hundred percent to, to the rogue community, to my coaching from Brent, to, uh, the run community to, and then just being consistent. And you touched on this last week at the kickoff about consistency. And I think that especially with people who have brains that are wired like mine, the consistency part is the easy part. Mm. We are, you put a training plan in front of us and we're going to check it off in a very, in an almost maniacal way, right? We're going to, we're, we're going to stick to that. If we deviate from it, we're going to be critical of ourselves and we're going to find a way to make up for it. Um, so we're very consistent and dedicated, especially when you tell us this is what you have to do if you want to accomplish X. Got to give a shout out to Brent Stein, your coach with the Killer Bees. That meets Tuesday and Saturday for those that want a, a really good group and coach here. That group meets Tuesday evening at 6 p.m. and then Saturday mornings for our long run. Obviously an amazing partnership you've had with Brent through the years. So really cool to just now look back, zoom out and kind of see that progression. I want to talk about 2019 because you ran Houston 324 in January, then got your first Boston qualifier 301 that December at CIM, making a 23-minute jump there. What do you attribute the keys to that jump? And also, what was it like getting your first BQ? Uh, I think it was just a, a matter of having a full year plus of structured training and coaching under my belt. When I signed up for Rogue in, in September 2018, and then with the intention of having a plan put together for Houston, I had that goal time in mind. It, for me, it was an aggressive goal, right? Because I was coming off 347 and then 337 the year before. And I, I don't think the 337 number, I think that marathon was short. It was in Europe. Um, I don't think it was 262. I didn't get 262 on my watch. I think I was closer to like a 340 something. So really, you know, my gauge for where I was from, from, from going from that Belgium marathon to Houston, I was like, I'm, I'm going to take 20 minutes off my time. And, and that seemed like a huge deal to me. And the fact that I accomplished that was, was, fantastic. And so my thinking was, well, that was a four month snapshot of what training does. If I implement and execute this for an entire year, then 
hopefully it'll pay off big time. And it did. Yeah. Uh, so again, it's not like I was doing anything different. I was doing things different as a runner, but I was just getting fitter and faster and, and staying doggedly dedicated to the training that was put in front of me and consistently doing the work. Yeah. Do the work, keep showing up as Des Linden says. I mean, it's, it's the number one factor in getting faster is just doing the work and then letting the results take care of themselves from there. At that point after Houston, when you ran 324, I assume that means you believed you could actually get that BQ. Mm-hmm. Did you think it would happen on the next try? I don't, I, 50-50. That would be my guess going into CIM. Mentally, it was hard for me to, to think about how challenging it was to do basically like a 703, 704, 705 mile for 26 miles. And that was the biggest barrier for me was I, I was still struggling, not struggling, but seven minute miles were hard. Mm. How am I going to do 26 of these in a row? Even we would have good training runs. We had a good simulator. We had a really good simulator workout in November, one of the best. But I still wasn't convinced until until I started to get into the avenues in Sacramento. And that's when it became apparent that that I was going to have what it took that day to qualify. It's interesting you mentioned that pace per mile reference point. I was having a conversation earlier this week with an athlete about they were they were running eight minute miles or something in high school. And that was fast for them on a PT test or something. And now we're talking about running eight minute miles for 26.2 miles for them. And while they can logically see how they got here because they can trace the work to this point and, and even have evidence of being able to do that for extended periods in training, there is still that mental block of at some way still being that high school runner who could only run eight minute miles in their head. So I assume that's the kind of challenge you're talking about in making that leap. Oh, totally. There is such a big disconnect between what your brain is telling you you can or can't do versus what your body is capable of doing. Yeah. So for you, what were the keys in just re the reprogramming your brain to believe or to just ignore it and smash through it? I don't know if there was any reprogramming, but a, a lot of sobriety is, like I mentioned earlier, about letting go of control over what you can't control. And for me, that meant trust the process. Whatever Brent and back then Amy were telling me to do, they have the evidence to prove that it works. And as long as I trusted them and trusted the process and in their running journey that they were putting me on, I knew the results would come around and they did. Yeah. How did you develop that trust in them? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Cause you could tell that they believed in you. Um, even from the first interactions and then in the one-on-one meetings. And when they told you if your goals were crazy or not, I told them I wanted to qualify for Boston in two years, thinking that they might think they, they might think that that was a laughable comment, but they didn't, they took that very seriously. And the level of attention to detail that they had, well, now just Brent, but Amy at the time, but Brent has for his athletes and every coach at Rogue has for their athletes. And and, and the, their institutional knowledge 
of all the runners they've coached in the past and, and the, and what they've done as a coach, it's, it was easy for me to put faith and trust and belief in people like that. So you get the Boston qualifier. I don't think I knew at the 2021 Boston, we were there together that that was your first Boston, at least in my head, I guess I hadn't put it together, but what was it like actually realizing that dream? It's something I'll never forget. Uh, people try to describe Boston to you, and you can't appreciate it uh, until you're there, either as a, as a spectator or on foot. Uh, what stands out most, though, is, was the bus ride. Because it's it, it, not that it was a particularly remarkable bus ride or unremarkable, but you're making that trip from Boston Commons out to the start line. And it's a very long and and not necessarily lonely trip but provides a very long opportunity for self-reflection but the entire way you're thinking we have to we have to come back this way on <laughs> and it just it just kind of shows you how insane we not necessarily insane but i can say insane i guess insane we are that that we're taking this hour-long bus ride and <laughs> And, 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 and we all signed up for this to, to yeah. run back. <laughs> that was the first time it really set in what it means to be a marathoner. Uh, you, you can look at a map, you can look at a mile, mile breakdown of a map, uh, but it doesn't really set in the magnitude of what it means to cover these distances until you're headed out there on a bus and then forced to run back. Yeah. The, the, I was so impressed by how these towns along the course show up every time I needed a lift from the crowd. I felt like it was there either Wellesley uh, where um, my sisters were. And then obviously the Wellesley students, when you fight through those Newton Hills and you ascend at the top of heartbreak, you're right there uh, at Boston college. And you've got a whole host of well lubricated college (laughs) students who probably didn't go to sleep. Um, and are very vocal in their support for you, for everybody. And um, that extends all the way into Boston. And I, I felt, you know, I didn't put my name on my bib. I was just a number. And even though I was just a number, I, I felt like every single person in the crowd was cheering just for me. And I'm sure a lot of people have that feeling as well. And then you get, when you make that turn on to Boylston, it's just a deafening crowd. And if there was ever... If, if Boston is the Super Bowl of our sport, you know, that is the arena, is Boylston Street. Um, the pageantry, the fanfare, the pouring out of emotions, it's impossible to describe, but it's a feeling that you'll carry with you for the rest of your life. No doubt. I get, I get goosebumps hearing you talk about it because it is, it is unlike any other experience in our sport in any other race from my perspective and you crushed it 13 minute PR sub 250, an unbelievable result in Boston on its own, much less on your first Boston. So how do you reflect on that result? I, so you know, we glossed over that little thing that happened in March of 2020. Uh, <laughs> True. <laughs> True. Uh, enough. Because I, you know, for, for people, for runners in the pandemic, I, I don't want to say it went one of two ways. Uh, cause a lot of people like me remain consistent and dedicated to our run. 
it actually used it as an outlet. And I wanted to touch on that too, about an outlet for mental health. Um, and then other people said, you know, I don't know when I'm going to be able to show up for an event again in person. So maybe this is the time I need to take a break. Uh, but the fact that I, that, that I continued to train over 2020 and into 2021, I think paid huge dividends for the Boston race that I had. And I was doing virtual racing in 2020. I got a neighbor, Lucas Mannering, who works at Run Lab that I was running with almost daily. He kind of reinforced that, that I could push myself and, 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 and be a, a better athlete and made me believe in myself more so than, than I had before. So 2020 was definitely a year where I, I, was, I was still getting fitter and faster, but only because I was being consistent. Yeah. And in many ways, you know, you'd been doing so many marathons every year that was probably a break that you needed in order to make that next big jump forward to just focus on consistency without the disruption a race can sometimes provide. But it's pretty cool that that became a platform on which you, you leaped further. I want to talk about the struggles, you know, you obviously running has been an amazing outlet, but where do you, where do you have a hard time? You know, where, where do those doubts come in or perhaps the dark thoughts, where do they enter and what does it look like for you? And then how do you cope with it when it happens? Um, well, at this point, I'm curious to see if I'm going to continue to improve like I have. And I know that that's not going to be the case at some point. Oh, well, I've topped out on my natural ability combined with the best training possible. And it's just not going to, not going to improve. And I've got to be, I've got to be fine with that. So, you know, that would be a top of mind struggle when I get to that and I'll figure out how to cope with it. But, you know, I definitely, I, I lean on the running community a lot um, when it comes to, to, to maintaining physical and, and mental health and those closest to me that I run with. And then when I run on my own, you, if I'm, if I'm dealing with something I'm struggling with internally or with somebody else and it's occupying some headspace, then these days I, I, I park it and, until I'm out on a run on my own and I work through it at that time. And that is the most valuable benefit I've seen on the mental health side when it comes to running, knowing that for that 30 minutes to an hour, I'm disconnected from everything. I'm disconnected from my phone. I'm disconnected from people. I'm disconnected from my job, any sort of surrounding environment that has distractions. And it's me and it's my thoughts and it's an opportunity to process whatever I'm struggling with, either internally or with somebody. And then at the same time, you know, I'm blessed with a running community who's developed into being some of my closest friends. You know, shout out to Allie, Jesse, and Jesse, a couple of which aren't here anymore. They're in Seattle. But it, it, when we're out on those Saturday morning runs, they can take two hours, two and a half hours. And none of us <laughs> are connected to our phones. <laughs> it's just us sharing our stories and our struggles and working through things together. And it, it, it's almost like free therapy for a couple hours on a Saturday morning. And um, 
So that's been a critical outlet to, to dealing with any sort of struggles you're going through, and especially if they're running people, because they can commiserate and you can um, share empathy with each other. But I would say the most important thing lately too, and this is something that I didn't discover until way too late, is that you have to give yourself grace. And that's really tough for, uh, it's always been tough for me. Um, and it's, it's tough for people who are addicts. It's tough for people whose brain are wired like mine. We are our own worst critic. We are harsh on ourselves. We punish ourselves. And it, and it does nobody any good, especially ourselves. And so to the extent that you can extend grace to those not only around you, but grace to yourself, and to know that if you missed a day, it's going to be fine. To know that it's okay to take a couple of weeks off. If anything, it's probably better that you do. To know that it's completely normal to have bad days, to have good days, to have running struggles, to have the highs and the lows that everybody has on their journey. As long as you know that, and as long as you're kind to yourself, then I think that that's what's most important. But it's something I didn't discover until recently. Yeah, I think that's an important message for anybody, much less those struggling with mental health. Just give yourself grace. That applies in so many situations. I want to dig in on a couple of things before we close. You mentioned meditation being a big part of your recovery journey. What does that look like for you? Um, I use Headspace. Okay. Uh, it's an app. Uh, a lot of people hopefully are familiar with it. It gained a lot of popularity and notoriety um, starting during the pandemic. It's structured meditation. Um, and if, if you have three minutes, you can do it. If you have 10 minutes, 15 minutes, that's what I appreciate about app-based meditation. It's not for everybody, but it works for me. Knowing that it, it just takes a few minutes a day to, to reflect on what you hope to um, derive from that day, or maybe it's from your week or whatever, um, internally and with the people around you. And uh, it's, it's just an opportunity to take an inventory. Of, of where you are and, and what's occupying your headspace and what needs to be addressed either right away or what doesn't need to be addressed. You can take an inventory of what's, of what is good and versus what can, what, what's, you can take the trash out of your brain to a little, to a certain extent. Um, so it's very helpful. Another thing I wanted to touch on is the balance, creating balance. You know, you mentioned that checking the boxes on the schedule is easy for an addict but I would assume for some and or maybe for you at times, it can go too far, you know, where you're essentially trading one addiction for another, perhaps, you know, health, running's healthy until you overdo it, in which case it can become perhaps destructive in its own ways. So talk about that piece of it and how you've maintained balance. Yeah, well, I have some built in balance, thanks to my five year old daughter. And, <laughs> um, and so depending on what's going on, her name's Nova. Uh, uh, my brightest star. Um, and, you know, depending on what's going on with her schedule, then I've got to work around that. So uh, between work, her demands and, and uh, not demands, but her, her schedule, that, that certainly creates some balance in my life between it just can't be like a, a, a 24 seven thing for me running and or other types of fitness. But it, it, the reason balance is so tough for addicts is because a lot of us, me included, we don't, we don't have a regulator in our brain uh, or a governor, if you will. 
they if we are doing something and there's a reward involved there's dopamine involved anything that triggers uh a little bit of euphoric feeling we are going to do that and we're going to do more and more and more of it and we're not going to stop typically on our own um it takes a lot of mechanisms for us to to regulate that behavior on our own or to invite external factors that'll regulate it on our behalf. And it's easy to be to, to say, oh, you're you're swapping a really bad activity for a really good activity. What's wrong with that? And inherently there's nothing wrong with that. As long as you understand that that good good activity has to be regulated. Um, because I mean it's the reason I made the leap from you know doing sprint triathlons to half marathons to marathons to I did an ultra on on my own. Um the the re, the reward of a 5k is great, but wouldn't a 10k reward feel better? And then wouldn't a half marathon reward feel better? And so you see it with some of these ultra runners who continue to push the boundaries of what their bodies can do. And I'm not going to speak on their behalf, but it makes me wonder, are they ever going to be satisfied? Are they ever going to achieve something to where they say, all right, I, this, I'm at the top of what I wanted to do in life and I'm fully satisfied and I've gotten everything that I want to get out of endurance running or whatever it is they do, like Ironman or whatever. Um, I don't know the answer for them. Um, all I know for me is that I like I, I keep on pushing with with my marathon training plans, the upper limit of the weekly mileage. And at some point I gotta I've gotta say, you know, it, it, should I be doing hundred mile weeks? I've never done a hundred mile. I know you have. I'd like to do a hundred mile week <laughs> for for my next build and I'll talk to Brent about it. But I need I need the structure from Rogue. I need the structure from the coaching and from the training plan to tell me to, to be my regular. Because mm. it is entirely if I was doing this on my own, I, I wouldn't have that. I'd be out there doing crazy things, um, hundred mile weeks consecutively, probably be doing ultra marathons, probably and I would probably be be injured. Um, there would be way too much use. I would be um in Run Lab or Mondo or some other clinic every every couple months getting treated on. And uh, so, yeah, at the end of the day, there is too much of a good thing. And you have to have a regulator in place. Because people like me, we can't regulate ourselves. It's an important note, just accountability, finding that accountability in whatever form about keeping it in that healthy, balanced place, coach being one potential option for that. And in many ways you have the community to keep you accountable. They're going to call you out if you're doing too much as well. Let's last few questions here. One of the first is talk about what's next. You followed your Boston with another 248 in Houston. Got to see you, I think about mile 20 there looking strong as you came home in the final 10 K. But what, what does the future look like for you and running now? Well, yeah, I, I was pleased with both results from Boston and Houston. Um, I was not pleased that they were um, positive splits. 
uh, especially in the last 10 Ks, you know, in Boston, the Newton Hills beat me up, kind of recovered afterwards, but didn't really Houston, you know, I mile 17, 18 fatigue started to set in my pace per mile drop. So I gotta, I gotta clean that up. I gotta get, um, uh, a better, I've got to get a race plan where I can execute both components of it. Um, so I'm doing New York in, in New York in November. So that's, what's next for me. And, and after that, I'd like to continue to do majors. Um, I'm also pacing in Houston in January. I'm pacing the 305 group. If you're looking at BQ, uh, I would highly recommend the Houston race. Uh, now that I, I have to be an ambassador for Houston because uh, <laughs> I'm a pacer. So it's a fantastic flat course, well-organized, typically great weather. Come run Houston. You'll have the time of your life and hopefully you'll be cute. Uh, so that's what's on the immediate horizon. Some combination of something in Texas and then some majors, um, probably Chicago the following year, and then maybe try and mix in London or Berlin when I can and Tokyo down the road. Uh, okay. and, and for New York, I, I'm setting a very aggressive goal, Chris, and this is because okay. of you. It's your okay. fault. All right. Uh, I asked you what, what you wanted to do. And basically I just stole your idea. Um, <laughs> Sub so, 240. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you told me it would take two years. So, and, and, and I started this training plan in January. So we'll see if I, I can compress it into 10 months. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm rooting for you. I won't get there by that point. I can promise you, but I hope you do for sure. And I second your shout out for Houston. I think one of the best marathons out there, so well produced. You didn't get to experience it probably in its full glory, the the post effect of Houston, but in I think a typical year outside of these pandemic times, they have one of the best finish line spreads in all of marathoning and just amazing food. You get to eat inside the convention center. So good, so easy. They separate you from the crowd. So before you even have to go out to the, you know, to meet your family or reunite with people or get kind of thrown back into the chaos of the post-finish line area, you have your own space, like sit down at a table, eat your food. Anyway, that's the way it's typically done. I don't think it was done this year for pandemic reasons, but anyway, we, we highly recommend Houston as a race. So last question then, and good luck to you on the sub 240 journey. I hope you beat me there for sure. When, as you, as we summarize, as someone who is only recently publicly sharing this journey, what do you hope people take away from our conversation? Uh, well, I hope that if, if they're struggling or if they know somebody that is, that there are people like me who are eager to talk to them, uh, on a, on a one-on-one basis. Um, and it does look Sobriety means a ton of different things these days. It can be people who are sober curious. It can be people who don't have an identified problem but just want to stop drinking for a while. It can be people who do think that they have a problem. So, you know, for me, it's a big tent. Um, and I, I would hope that you, that people could reach out to me or someone like me and they could confide in what's going on and, and we could talk through it. But also just you know, hear all the time about how exercise is good for mental health, but concrete examples of how it's applied in your training, I think go a long way in, in helping people understand that if they haven't thought about the role running plays in their mental health, then to be maybe be a little bit more mindful of it or more intentional about it and what sort of opportunities that running creates for you to, to, to improve 
your your mental health overall. I mean, that's by and large the largest takeaway for me is this profound intersection of the two. And arguably, running is as important for my physical health as it is mental health, if not more so. Well, that's a beautiful way to end it. Thank you so much, Michael, for sharing your story. We really appreciate it. I appreciate it too, Chris. Thank you. Michael Wilt, everyone. Rogue Athlete here in Austin. I hope you enjoyed hearing his story about his mental and physical journey and what running has done for him. I hope that connected with you and gave you some inspiration to carry into your own journeys. Like I said earlier, if you need help in this area, I would definitely recommend seeking out a medical professional, but hopefully running can be an outlet for you too, or has been an outlet for you too. All right, we're going to wrap this episode here. As always, you can check us out at roguerunning.com or follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at Rogue Running. Until next time, we'll talk to you soon.